Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. I am your host, Lisa Wolfork. And as I say every week, this is a very special episode because for this episode, I am talking with the one, the only, Chris Cooper, who, you know how they say, say it with your chest when you're really proud of something, when you really know you are who you are? Chris Cooper today, folks, is saying it with her chest. And if you were a Patreon supporter, and why are you not? You totally should be. Hashtag pay Black women. You would see that Chris Cooper is a master seamstress. And I am not guessing. I am affirming because she has told us this and it is right there on her shirt. So welcome, Chris, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. I feel so honored. I watch you. And most of the time when I watch you, I'm in tears so I can really see and hear what's <laughs> going on. But thank you so much for having me. I, I'm so honored. This is such exciting development for us. I am super, super glad to learn more about your work, to talk about Studio Tissue 8, to talk about couture sewing, fashion, designing, all of the stuff that you do, all the products and services that you offer. But I want to begin at the beginning. And from what I see from your story is that you started at a very young age with almost like a mission-driven sewing project. So can you talk about some of your, I was thinking specifically about the stack of naked dolls that you were given as a child to work on. That was the very beginning. Unbeknownst to me, I would be where I am today. But my sister, who at the time worked for a corporation, and they had community groups and things of this nature, and she belonged to the women's group. I think it may have been called something else, but it was the women's group. And they were, this particular Christmas, they were charged with dressing doll babies and taking them back to their community. So she brings these doll babies home. It's a box of doll babies. I think maybe 16, I want to say. Well, maybe not that many, maybe 10 or 12. But they're all naked. My mother's raising four girls basically by herself. So here comes my sister with eight more or 12 more girls that need clothing. (laughs) And so my sister, fabulous dresser, but knows nothing about dressmaking. None of us knew anything about sewing. My grandmother had given my mother a sewing machine that was in the closet. It was a Kenmore. It was in the closet. And I was like, well, I can't let the dogs just sit here. We got to do something. And so I just started playing around with my mother's pillowcases. <laughs> I thought she was going to throw me out the house. I was eight years old. That would have been hard. That would have been very hard. That would have been very hard. It would have been very hard to become Chris Cooper, master seamstress, if your mama put you out at eight for cutting up her good pillowcases. But she did not find out. So we continue. So I kept trying and trying until I got something that looked close clothing for doll babies. And I did them all and my sister took them away. But I remember as I was doing them, I remember saying to myself, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I mean, it was almost like that. Wow. And so then I proceeded to teach myself how to sew, messing up a lot of fabric. There was a store, I think it was called Gaylord at that time. It changed to many things, but I think it was called Gaylord's. And they sold fabric and they had patterns. And then there was another store downtown Wilmington called Joy Trim, where you could get trim. And I mean, they had everything, you name it. I think they sold everything but cars. 
hours. Wow. And so between my mother's pillowcases and sheets and the store that was in our neighborhood and the store downtown, I just taught myself to sew. A little later on, maybe when I was about 12, because I was in junior high school, there was a gentleman who lived in my neighborhood. His name was Joe Brumskill. He graduated from Carson. I think he was originally from Pennsylvania, from Chester, but he lived in Wilmington. He found out about me. He took me under his wings. He became my mentor. And it's so funny because when he took me under his wings, he was embarking on a stage play, costume me for a stage play. Okay. He threw me right in. He was like, this is what you're going to do. Do it. And I was like, I've not done this before. And everything <laughs> that I've done up until this point has been for me. No one else has seen it. So... I mean, I learned on the fly. I really did. I learned on the fly. And so you were 12. Are you saying that when you were 12, you were working on costuming a stage play? There was another interesting detail in your bio that I want to hear more about. And I want to hear if this was before or after. On your site, it says that you were like maybe in sixth grade or so, that you took a formal sewing class and that you ended up knowing more than the teacher. Yes. And so I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, how does a sixth grader know more than the teacher does about sewing? Was this after you started working with this designer or even beforehand? It was during It kind of happened at the same time, but it was back when schools offered home economics and you had to do the whole circuit, the block, cooking, sewing, clean, whatever else. Right. Sewing, of course, was my first choice. At that time, the teacher, she had just graduated. I don't even think they do this anymore, but she had just graduated from college and she was technically doing an internship. I think they Uh, named it something else back then, but she was doing an internship. Now, I think about this. What are you, 22 when you graduate from college? Yes. She comes to the city, goes to an all-black school. Okay. Is this a white lady or black lady? She's white. Okay. She's 21, 22, and she's in this school. The school, it was called Burnett Middle School. It had eight floors. Wow. Eight floors of African-American kids. That's a huge school. Yes. They tore it down last year, but she was frightened out of her mind. Oh, my gosh. She could not see her feet in front of one another. So wow. I convinced my girlfriend to take this class with me. With you, yeah. Put the needle through her finger and quit. Never came back. Oh, wow. And to this day, she bothers me about it. Chris is trying to kill me. I thought we were friends, but she took me to this white lady house. She took me to this white lady classroom and I sat there and then the machine stabbed me and I'm done. There's a very terrified white lady here who was supposed to be our teacher, but she's apparently also afraid of black people or black children. And I'm not getting a lot accomplished. So I'm out. But you stayed. How'd that go? I stayed and I made my skirt. I taught everybody else how to sew. Oh my And she gosh. couldn't believe I made it. I know you will remember this. It was a wrap skirt. It was tangerine and it had the two pockets. The two. Yes, yes. She was like, how did you know how to do this? And I was like, well, you know, first I believe it was a gift. And then I just honed in on it. And she was like, oh my goodness. She was blown out of the water, but I ended up teaching the class. Yeah. That's nonsense. It's what I like to call pedagogical mispractice. And you know, of course you can laugh about it now because you survived it, right? But what you're describing is not okay. It's not neutral. What she did was wrong. No, they should have never put her there. 
They should have never put her there. They should have put her in a more balanced environment. I think if she's afraid of Black people, she should teach no one. Well, this is true. But this was also in 1972. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. I don't care if it was 1962. I don't care if it was 1862. And we have (laughs) histories of white teachers being terrified of Black people in every single one of those eras I mentioned. No, this is 1972. We had color television in good times. Just about to get kicking off. No, thank you. No, 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 ma'am. You're not going to come here and dangerous minds me. You're not going to come here and do that white savior narrative in this classroom. No, ma'am. Yes. I'll teach us. I'll teach us. So you survive the sewing class and you end up teaching the sewing class. And because your spark was lit so early, it just sounds to me like because you were creating these doll outfits to give to other people, to kind of brighten other kids' lives. I'm wondering if when you said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, when you said those words, were you moved by the process of solving the problem of how do I make doll clothes? How do I make it look nice? Or were you like, I want to make something look nice so I can make another child smile. Do you recall at all what you were motivated by in terms of the actual sewing? Can you be able to go back and think that far? It's kind of like both, but I distinctly remember thinking that it was a gift because it was never hard for me. Yes. It just came to me. Like if I did something wrong, the correct way just popped in my head and I never had to work at it. And even now, I don't have to work at it. I just do it. Things that yes. I've never done before. I mean, I remember doing cushions for a boot. And I'm like, why are these people asking you to do all this crazy stuff? They loved it. I mean, I just know, I just innately know how to do it. For me, because of that, which I call a gift, I feel like I need to share it. I feel like I can't hold on to it. I've got to share it. Yes. It's a little of both. Yeah. It was gifted to you. So you want to offer that and amplify that so other people can have the benefit from it, but also know how to do it themselves as well. That this gift that you have is a gift that you can help other people give themselves. Exactly. By learning. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. So do you remember what the stage production was? What was the show? And what were your responsibilities? It was at the Playhouse, which was then owned by the DuPont Company. And it was at the DuPont Hotel in Wilmington, Delaware. And the play was by B.B. Kroger. And I want to say it was called Something About Tea. Okay. Don't remember the exact name of it. But if you know B.B. Kroger, you know that she did a play in Wilmington Playhouse. Excellent. And I remember cutting out the dresses. They were polyester and they were what I would consider now like a swing dress. Yes. It was a fitted bodice and a swing skirt. And I remember him handing me the pieces in pattern paper. It was cut out in muslin. Wow. That was the pattern. Yes. And the pieces were numbered. And he was like, okay, you're going to cut out five of these, five of these, five of these, and five of these. He didn't give me any pen, but he gave me a pair of scissors. Wow. And I was like, well, how am I going to do this? And he was like, put the piece of muslin pattern down and put your hand on it and cut around it. Wow. And that's what I did. Wow. That's incredible. That is really awesome. I'm going to take a quick pause here. And y'all, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Chris. Thank you so much. September is National Sewing Month. And the Stitch Please podcast is going to celebrate that like we celebrate every episode by centering Black women, girls, and femmes in sewing. For September, however, we are going to be talking with Black women authors who are also 
Sewists. So tune in for the month of September and you will hear from writers like Bianca Springer, Hakima Hapa, Leslie Ware, Olubemisola, Rude Perkovich, and more. So listen out for September and we will help you get your stitch together. All right, everybody, we are back. I am talking today with Chris Cooper, master seamstress and the owner proprietor of Studio Tissue 8. And she is talking to us about her background and learning to sew in a very organic way that feels almost like she wasn't so much learning, but maybe remembering or practicing it because her sewing is a gift and her work is a gift that she wants to help other folks. So you said you would offer free classes at the public library. What made you turn to that as a form of reaching out to folks and helping folks learn how to sew more? When I relocated to D.C. in 2007, I knew no one here outside of my one girlfriend who lived in Maryland and really didn't have any connects in D.C. and my son's side of the family who lived in Virginia. So I was basically here really by myself. I mean, I packed up everything. I always knew I would move when my son graduated from college, but I didn't know where. I sold everything I had, car, everything, and moved to D.C., no job, no nothing, but I knew how to sew. In the past, that had always been my fallback. So not knowing anybody, I was like, I got to figure out a way to network and to start to meet people and this, that, and the other. I can only do that through sewing because that's what I do. Yes. And so I was like, okay, so figure out a way to reach my community. This is a no-brainer. This is what I'm thinking. This is a no-brainer. Parents can drop their kids off at the library for two hours. Yes. When I started doing it, I said, okay, it's not working in my community. Let me try other community. And so I began doing that. I had a little bit of success in the beginning, but then eventually, I guess people, for whatever reason, didn't come or whatever, or I would have one or two or something like that. But it was just also another form of me giving back. At some point, I got to the point of, it doesn't matter. I'm here. If they want to come, I'm here. This is my give back, and I can't worry about what other people think or do. Right. As long as I'm doing my part. And that's how I arrived at it. Oh, I love that so much because it's kind of like one of those things about like if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Right. I always thought, of course, it makes a sound. How arrogant do you have to be to think that just because I wasn't there to hear it, it has no sound. That's nonsense. And so what you're describing is how you were so committed to sharing the gift of sewing that all you wanted to do is share it. You're sharing it, you're sharing it, you're sharing it, you're putting it out there. Whether somebody takes it or not, your task is complete. Your task was the sharing, right? You can't be on both sides. You can't be like sharing it and worried about who's going to get it and how they're going to receive it and will they come back? No, you're only responsible for one part of that equation. And so now that you're running Studio Tissue 8, can you talk about how that name come to you and what does that mean, if it means something? Yeah, Studio Tissue 8 came to me. My son is a graphic designer and all of this kind of stuff. So I was like, what name should I use? And he was hitting a brick wall too. So now I was like, okay, so let's think about what it is that I'm doing. Studio, to me, always means something is happening, some type of art form, I think. And then tissue can be used in different ways, but in French, it's fabric. Yes, that's right. You know, something in your hand, fabric. And then eight, I began sewing when I was eight. 
Oh my gosh. I think I've mentioned on this very short broadcast three times that you were eight years old when you started sewing. And now I'm like, Studio Tissue 8. I wonder where that came from. I have no idea. And then you say that and it's like, oh, wow, all the Rubik's Cube boxes click into place. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. And you know, I'm thinking about studio because I agree with you. When I hear the word studio, I think about art. Somehow art is happening. But I'm wondering, too, because studio can be both a noun and a verb, it feels like to me, right? Like the studio is the place, the box, the container where you have all your stuff. But it's also the processes that you are doing when you are in that space, that you are doing the work of the studio by designing and drawing and sketching and cutting and sewing and unsewing and re-sewing and shape, all of those things. Can you talk a bit about when you were sharing the gift of sewing or sharing the practice of sewing? Do you see it as a noun or do you see it as a verb? Do you see it as something that is an art practice, an art form, a craft, a practice like a philosophical or therapeutic practice? Like it can be so many things. I wonder which of those are the most important aspects for your own sewing, the idea of it as a noun or the idea of it as a verb? Wow, Lisa, it's all of those things for me. It really is. And I think most importantly, it's therapeutic. I love that. Yes, I'm a middle of the night sewer, middle of the night, early morning. I can't get crap done during the day. I just really can't. Like, I cannot focus because everybody's awake. Everybody's up. Everybody's moving around. And so during the day, there's so many things happening. But in the middle of the night, it's quiet. People say, how can you meditate when you're sewing? I don't need to keep still. That's right. I really don't to meditate. But there's something about that fabric in my hand and the sound of the sewing machine just puts me at total ease. Listen, I solve a lot of problems in my head when I'm sewing. When you sew, do you listen to music? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you like silence? What does the sewing vibe, what is your middle of the night sewing vibe like? And I'll tell you about mine because I have the same type. I usually listen to music. I came from a jazz family. Clifford Brown is a relative of mine. Oh, wonderful. So I listen to jazz most of the time. If I'm really focused in and I really need to figure something out, dead silent. Yeah. But most of the time, it's music. Most of the time, it's jazz. Every now and then, like if I miss one of your podcasts, I'll listen. If I miss something and I really need to watch it or listen to it, then I will. But it's rare. It's rare. It reminds me like your process. I am a late night person. I sometimes feel like I'm an omnivore, the people that eat everything. Are you a night owl or an early bird? And I'm like, yes, both. Because I want to stay up late, but I also want to get up early because I don't like to miss things. And so it means that I'm often very exhausted. But I do remember, I still have the routine that you described. I like to stay up late. I tend to go to bed way later than anybody should, 3.30 in the morning, whatever. It's not okay. I do not recommend. But you know what? I feel like I'm still stuck in the times when my kids were little. There were always demands. There were always questions. There were always something that I needed to do. And if I wanted time to myself and I wanted the house to be quiet, I had to wait until everybody went to bed. And now, because my kids are grown and one is with us here, but working full time and the other one is at college. And so essentially, I have a quiet house. There's no need for me to wait until two o'clock in the morning to do anything. And yet, here we are. 
And yet still, like nobody is, mama, mama, like tapping me on the shoulder while I'm asleep to say, are you awake? No one's doing that anymore. And so those habits are kind of hard to break. And I guess what I'm interested in is the way that sewing brings ease into your thinking process, right? That you can use this as a moment to say, you know what, I want to figure this out. And in order to do so, I'm going to work on this garment and I'm not going to listen to anything that requires my attention. I am just going to focus on doing this sewing work. And then in the back of my head, this idea will also be percolating. Is that how it kind of works for you when you sit down? If you're like, oh, I have this dilemma or I'm unsure about how to approach this. Do you have an example, if you could share one, about how sewing has been that type of process that allows you to think or to process problems or ideas or concepts or things that have come to you during sewing? You only know these things if you're a sewer or if you're an artist. And though it's all of those things. If there's something I don't want to say I can't do, but I say on the spot, I may not be able to figure it out on the spot. Yes. Normally what I do is I look at it and think about it every single day until I'm actually ready to work on it. Because at any given time, like now I have 20 gowns that I'm working on. Oh my they're gosh. all similar because they're from the same retailer. So they're all similar. But there's two that I just can't even imagine how to alter. I keep looking at them thinking, I'm running out of time. I need to figure it out. So I'm going to, my focus is getting everything else done. And these two that are left, I'm going to dedicate my time and my thought process to that. Do a little bit of research and try to figure out how to accomplish. And like I said, I don't think I can't do it. You said I've never done it before. Yes, that is it. And you know what that reminds me of? We talked a little earlier, y'all, about fear. And I would like to talk about fear. I'd like to talk about it the way that you talked about it. Can you shed some light on the story about how fear was something you had to recognize and then work through and to come out on the other side? Because something that I tend to think about fear is that sometimes your victory is on the other side of fear. And that's what your story seems to suggest. Can you talk a little bit about the fear that you had when you were first getting started or the fear that you had when you returned in 2007 and opened up the shop in 2008? How did fear and overcoming that, because really it's not about the fear, it's about the overcoming that I find so powerful. Can you share some of that story with us? On the other side of every fear is victory. I've never been a fearful person moving to D.C. with no job, no nothing, no car, no nothing. Just in itself, it's fearful because it's the ever-moving city. I mean, it's not New York, but it's very close. Like, people are moving, people are moving. People seem to be very cliquish here. I mm. hate to say that because we always say women are cliquish and this, that, and the other, but I'm telling you, in D.C., it's an absolute real thing. Congress is clicky as hell, if you think about it. Please. <laughs> Congress, not enough. So I, no. I forever reject these that women are clicky women are backstabbing I'm like have you met men <laughs> exactly and how many of them have you met but anyway so coming to DC having a storefront and then that closing the fear of continuing my business was real and it kept me really from doing what I wanted to do for at least a year and then I just thought like what is wrong with me? Like, what's happening to me? Not mm. other people. I did a, some soul searching for me. And I was like, okay, you've never been fearful. I mean, you know, you give yourself to come 
Mother Jesus talk all the time, morning, noon, and breakfast at night. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, you're never going to do anything that you want to do if you don't get out of this fear thing. And so I did. I just said, you know what? Again, I'm here. I'm doing my part. Eventually, people will come. And that is exactly what happened. Now, granted, some other fears took the place of that fear. <laughs> That's the thing about fear. Once you get over the fine, it's like a doggone whatever the hormone that controls fear. It'll keep making it. It will keep making new fears. Once you get rid of one, they'll just keep going, add a new one in. And I mean, I've had people tell me and therapists tell me that's normal. Fear is what pushes you. Fear is what makes you do things out of your comfort zone. If you don't have fear, then maybe something's not right because you should fear something. But like you said, how you overcome it and how you get to that victory is what is the most important. So on the other side of that victory is now. Yes. Yes. I love your now. I love your now. Oh my gosh. So one fear I have is growing old, growing older, I should say, and not seeing my grandkids. I feel confident that I will see them graduate from school, yes. graduate from college, but that's probably it. I'm not probably not going to see a wedding or anything like that. And that is my biggest fear. So people say, well, then you're, fear, you're afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of dying. I just want to see my kids. You don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss anything. You want to stay up late and get up early. You're right. You want to use all your time. Rubbing my eyes. Exactly. Exactly. And here's the thing that I, just speaking about midlife and, and growing into that, I have to tell you the thing that has helped me, which is something that might help all of us, is Black women. And there's two Black women in particular that I absolutely love who are doing the midlife space for Black women in their late 40s, early 50s, 60s, like talking with us about menopause and about being fly and amazing at any age and fighting against the ageism and all of these things. And that is Omasade Bernie Scott. And she runs the Black Girl's Guide to Menopause, which is a podcast. She's got wonderful products and she's amazing. I love her. And then also my friend, we were in Girl Scouts together, believe it or not. And now she is known on Instagram and elsewhere as Yo Fly Auntie, Kendra Lindsay. And she has a podcast, but she also does a lot of influencing in the beauty and hair makeup space and just saying, hey, love your age, beautiful at any age, not beautiful despite your age or beautiful for your age. Beautiful is the beginning, middle, and end of all the sentences. And so I think when I have fear, it sometimes helps me to get additional information and to find possibility models. The reason I wanted to kind of talk about that or turn to that question with you is because where you are now is so thriving and wonderful. And I wonder if you look back and say, thank you, Chris Cooper from 2008. Thank you for getting past that fear and working through that fear in 2009. Thank you for bringing me to this point. Do you ever pause when you're doing your meditation of sewing or other practices that you pause and thank yourself for what you've done so far? I don't, actually. And here's the thing. First of all, thank you for sharing that information about the two young ladies. I will get that information from you and definitely follow because I firmly believe that if we all stick together, we can become better people, better yes. ourselves, yes. better women and so on. Yes. But when people talk about me, like my girlfriends, when we go out and there's someone there that I've not met, or they say, oh, this is my girlfriend, Chris. She's an amazing seamstress. And I'm thinking to myself, why don't you have to go say that? 
Because it's true? It just feels weird. I don't want the spotlight to be on me kind of thing. I'm trying my best to get away from that. And there have, and most recently, there's been moments where I've, you know, patted myself on the back. And I've probably made one or two posts about, you should have a seamstress like me in your back pocket or those kinds of things. But I still shy away from it. But I know I'm beautifully made. Yes through God. And I know all this and everybody said, let your light shine. And I don't know. (laughs) You are letting it shine. You are letting it shine. I am looking at it right now. And again, Patreon people and those who will soon become Patreon people, you want to see the shirt she's got on, the way that it radiates with your hair and your smile and your eyes and all of it. It is light. It is all light. The joy and your laughter, all of that is the best that we can hope for. I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody, Chris, I'm going to ask you, what would you say to our listeners? Because the slogan of the Stitch Please podcast, which you might know, is we will help you get your stitch together. What would you do? What would you offer? What advice do you have for our listeners to help them get their stitch together? Get your stitch together means a lot more than just sewing on a sewing machine. To me, it means as a human, but as a woman, get yourself together. That, that's the way I take it. Get yourself together. I always talk about fit matters. And to me, that's the same thing as get your stitch together. When you walk out your door, are you fit? Is your stitch together? How do you present yourself? How do you show up? Everybody knows to show up differently than other races. That's not a secret. Oh, gosh. Especially not here at Black Women Stitch. What do you mean? What is this racism you mean? What of this do you speak? Is this Angela Davis, Shirley Chisholm embroidery and this Angela Davis embroidery about racism? (laughs) Like, I don't understand. What do you mean Black people are oppressed? more. That's how I view the get your stitch together. To me, it means how are you going to show up? To me, it's much more than a superficial thing. It's a holistic thing. Yeah, your hair looks good. Your nails are done. Your makeup is on point, whatever. You got the best stilettos on. All of that. It's inside. Exactly. Because I don't have any of that stuff. Right. Whatever's inside, that's the beauty in you. All of this other hair and stuff, it's just icing. Yes, it is icing. Icing on the cake. So that's what gets your stitch together. So get yourselves together. That's my advice. Get yourself together. Call me. I'll get your clothes together. And we got a deal. Love it. (laughs) All right. And Chris, you know what? I've been working on doing bonuses for Patreon. And so after we're going to end here right now, but y'all, I'm going to ask Chris to tell us in the bonus section of the episode to tell us about any type of raggedy slash nightmare clients with alterations, because you know, alterers like hairdressers got stories for days. So if you want to hear some more tea, you need to come to the bonus episode, which is for Patreon only. Chris, Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. I'm so honored. And I just think that you are so amazing and so funny. I want to be like you when I grow up. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us today. This was awesome. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, 
and you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcast directories or services allow for reviews, but for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. 